0: It's really lovely to see you all this morning, uh, this evening, should I say, um, and to those who celebrate Chinese New Year, a uh, blessed Chinese New Year. Today we're going to be continuing the series we've been doing for the last few weeks, which is from John's Gospel. Uh, we're now in John chapter 5. It would be really helpful if you could open your Bible again to John chapter 5, that was page 1062, John chapter 5, page 1062. The other thing that you may find helpful is in the very middle of your white bulletin, you'll find an outline and there's some references and things there which might help you. Let's pray. Mighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray now that after the busyness and, and the troubles of this day, you would grant to us clear and focused minds that... At this time, we might consider rightly your word, that you would work by your spirit to make it clear to us and so show us in it your Son and the peace and life that he brings. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Richard Dawkins, perhaps you've heard of him, the famous atheist, once said, Faith is belief in spite of or perhaps because of the lack of evidence. And I've often spoken to Christians who, who seem to feel that their own faith is a little bit like that. It, it's like a leap in the dark. The same kind of idea, do you see? However, as we look at today's passage from the gospel, we're going to see that that, in fact, could not be further from the truth, because today. In this gospel passage, we will see Jesus responding to the Jews who are trying to deny his claim to be the Son of God. And in order to do so, he's going to bring forward three solid witnesses that will guarantee his claims are true. And then he'll go on to expose the real reason why it is that they will not believe. Well, we're we're still in the same scene that we started a couple of weeks earlier. A couple of weeks ago we saw Jesus healing this man who had been lying sick and powerless for 38 years just with a word get up take your bed and walk the Jews at that time had become really mad at him because he'd healed the man on the sabbath and so to their way of thinking he'd broken the sabbath he was a transgressor for healing the man Jesus, however, had made them even more mad because he responded to that charge by saying it was okay for him to work on the Sabbath because his father, God, also works on the Sabbath. So making himself equal to God, and that made them absolutely furious with him, and they wanted to kill him. And then in last week's reading, which is just before this one, we saw that Jesus did not back down when they charged him with this. In fact, as it were, he poured fuel onto the fire He insisted not only is he equal to God, but he should be honoured just as the Father is honoured. And he insists that he has been made the judge of all the earth. And this, do you see, is a tension that we start our passage with today. On the one hand, Jesus, who is insisting that he is the Son of God and they must believe in him to have life. And then on the other, these Jews who see no evidence, no, no reason to trust in his claims, and so want to put him to death as a blasphemer who pretends to be God himself. So he calls his witnesses. You might think his first witness would be him himself, but generally no one will believe what you say about yourself. If it's not supported. People can and do say anything about themselves, even under oath. Jesus himself says, and this is verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So his first witness is going to be someone else, John the Baptist. And and if, if you are familiar with what happened in chapter one, you remember that John the Baptist had been baptizing in the wilderness. And back in John chapter one, we read that the Jews had sent a team to get a statement from him. Who are you and what are you doing? John had told them then that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That is to say, I'm preparing the way for God to come. And then Jesus came and he pointed to Jesus and said, this is the son of God. And the Jews had already received that message this is verse 32 jesus says there is another who bears witness about me and i know that the testimony he bears about me is true you sent to john and he has borne witness to the truth but it would be a strange thing wouldn't it if jesus's status as the son of god depended on what john said or didn't say and in fact it doesn't depend on what john says But that doesn't mean that what John says is not a helpful testimony, not helpful to persuade the Jews to believe in Jesus, because the Jews had already accepted John, that they had rejoiced for a time in John and his ministry. And so what he says counts. This is what Jesus says in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that is John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now the second witness, a greater witness, is Jesus says, verse 36, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. What is this greater testimony? Well, it is the fact that Jesus has been doing the works of God the Father. He says it like this, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. Jesus has done all kinds of things so far, but I think particularly in view is what he's just done is he healed that man who had been powerless and sick for 38 years. The Old Testament insists that it is is the Lord God alone who heals the diseases of his people. We we sung about it in, in our psalm. He's the one who sends out his word and heals them. But Jesus has just done it with his own word and his own authority. And do you see what's even worse for the Jews about this witness is that they cannot deny it. Their whole case, if you think about it, is built on the fact that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. If they start to deny that he healed the man, they undermine their whole case and it collapses. But if they try to deny, uh, but if they admit that he healed the man, they're going to have to explain how it is that someone who they say is not equal to God, but a blasphemer, can do God's very own works before their eyes. Impressive witnesses, right? But the third witness is greater yet. The third witness, in fact, is the greatest ever. For the third witness is God, the Father himself. Verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Hang on. They heard from John. They saw the sick man healed. But the Father, how has he borne witness to Jesus? Jesus says, His voice you have never heard. His form, you have never seen it. I suppose I'm thinking, well, then there's there's no testimony. But then Jesus adds the kicker, and you do not have his word abiding in you. If you think about it, that's highly offensive to the Jews, isn't it? To tell the Jews, people who are so concerned with God's word that they're chasing after Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, to tell them that they don't have God's word? How can it be that these Jews who spend their time poring and searching over the scriptures, how can it be they don't know the scriptures? On what ge- basis can Jesus say this? Jesus says it is so because they don't believe in him. You do not have his word abiding in you, Jesus says, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. But what is the link between the two? Jesus straightaway explains, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Do you see it now? The third witness, the Father, testifies to Jesus, his Son, by the Old Testament scriptures. Not primarily by new, audible words, not visible actions, but by the scriptures. And so he says, if they really believe those scriptures as they claim, they would also believe Jesus. But that's a really big claim to suddenly make, isn't it? But let me tell you, it is also a claim that is absolutely true, for it is no exaggeration to say that the Old Testament is all about Jesus, just as much as the New Testament, only that the Old Testament bears witness to Jesus who is yet to come, and the New Testament to the Jesus who has already come. The early church preached Jesus and the gospel in exactly this way, not by calling for a leap of faith, not by demanding belief in spite of a lack of evidence, but by showing how the Old Testament clearly and necessarily testifies to Jesus, the Son of God. That's why there are hundreds and hundreds of quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's why when we read of people like the noble Bereans, when we read of them genuinely searching the scriptures, they find that every claim Jesus makes is true. And so they find life in his name. And the same is true for you and I even today. The more we dig into those Old Testament scriptures, the more we will find unfolding there Jesus in many rich and wonderful, varied ways. For those of us who know well our Old Testament, let me remind you of a few, and and there are more in your bulletin. Let me ask you who it is, right at the beginning of the Bible, who in Genesis is the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. It is Jesus. When Abraham takes his only son, his beloved, to sacrifice him, Who is that lamb that the Lord will provide in his place? It is Jesus. Who is that promised seed of Abraham's line in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed? It is only Jesus. Who is Jacob's ladder upon whom the angels of God ascend and descend? It is Jesus. Who is Israel's forever king from Judah's line who will receive the obedience of the nations? Jesus who is the Passover lamb, who is sacrificed for us and saves God's people by his blood. It is Jesus, who is that bread from heaven, the life-giving manna. It is Jesus. Who is it who fulfills forever the sacrifices and the burnt offerings, the animals that had to die in the place of sinners that they may live? It is Jesus. Who is that serpent who is lifted up upon the pole in the wilderness that whoever looks upon him should live? It is Jesus. Who is that star of David and the scepter of Israel? Jesus. Who is it? That is that prophet like Moses, the one who will speak the Father's words, who we are to listen to, is Jesus. Who rules now on David's everlasting throne? Jesus. Who is Psalm 2's everlasting eternal king? Blessed are all who put their trust in Jesus. Who is the one that David calls my Lord, the one who was not abandoned to Sheol, but raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father? Jesus, Who is the stone that the Psalms say the builders rejected, that is now the head of the corner? It is Jesus, the one of whom Isaiah spoke, born of a virgin. Jesus, the promised child, mighty God, almighty Father, Prince of Peace. It is Jesus, to whom Isaiah says every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The light to the Gentiles who brings salvation to the ends of the earth. The good shepherd who brings his people rest. The one who Isaiah says bears our sins. Who is pierced for our transgression. Who purchases peace with God by his own blood. It is Jesus. From start to end of this holy book, it speaks his name. For here. God the Father testifies to him that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ should be saved. But yet the Jews, who searched these very scriptures, refused to come to him that they might have life. We've seen those three witnesses, haven't we? First John the Baptist. Second, the works the Father gave Jesus to do. And third, the Father who richly, deeply, and reliably testifies to Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Let's think logically for a little bit. The Jews already accept John. They've seen Jesus doing the Father's works. And they certainly cannot deny the scriptures. And so it should be an open and shut case, right? Jesus clearly has shown himself irrefutably to be the Son of God. And so they should, at this point, now fall down before him and give him the honor and the glory that is equal to the Father, but they don't. Instead, verse 40, they refuse. They refuse to come to him that they might have life. But why? Not because of a lack of evidence, but because of hearts that do not love God. Verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Instead of loving God, they love themselves. And so instead of seeking glory for God, they seek glory for themselves. They're happy to glorify someone who comes in his own name and will glorify them back. Oh, yes, no problem. But they will not humble themselves to accept this Jesus, to fall humbly, helplessly before him, to deny themselves and give God alone the glory. Oh no, they will not give up their position of power and authority and glory, not even for life from the Son of God himself. As Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name. Verse 43. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We see, don't we, what a terrible danger it is to have that that sinful love of self and foolish pride that may lead us even to reject salvation itself. So we've seen the witnesses. We've seen now the real reason why they reject Christ. In the last part of this passage, we are now going to see Jesus, so to speak, moving from being on trial for his claims to, to assuming the judgment seat, because this rejection of Jesus is culpable. On the day of judgment, his accusers will be found guilty, not because Jesus will accuse them, but because Moses himself, will condemn. For how can it be that they spend all their time with one side of their mouth going on and on and on about the law of Moses and then with the other side of their mouth deny all that Moses says concerning Jesus, the Son of God? As Jesus says, and this is verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And I'm sorry to say, that for all that Jesus said and taught, they continued to persecute him even to death. A death, of course, which their very own scriptures had long ago foretold where he would be pierced for our transgressions and bear our sins. A death where he would be chastened by the Lord to bring us peace. A death where he would be the perfect sacrifice that every sacrifice for sin had pictured and put an end to sacrifice forever. The spotless lamb. Christ, our Passover sacrifice to save us from our sins, where he's lifted up upon the cross like that serpent in the wilderness that we might look upon the Son of God and be saved, just as the Scriptures promised. Yet also as the Scriptures promised, he was not abandoned in the grave to Sheol, nor did God's Holy One see corruption, but on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures and sits at the right hand of the Father. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to consider this thing, that we, even more than the Jews of his day, have testimony clear and concrete that Christ is the Son of God. That is the only verdict that we, if we are honest, can return. He is the Son of God and So we must come to him, that on the day he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, we who have faith in his name will not enter into judgment, but share in the resurrection of life. As the scriptures said, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. Now I'm aware there may perhaps be some here who have not yet themselves trusted in Jesus and and if that is you, then I urge you to make this evening the evening you do come and believe in him. And don't let, uh, don't let your natural pride and, and self-glory stop you. Don't, don't make the same mistake of the Jews in this passage that could not bring themselves to humble themselves at the foot of his cross. Come to him who alone will give you life now and raise you again on the last day. Come to him who, let me remind you, is the Son of God who came down from the glories of heaven themselves to be born as a man and to suffer and die for your salvation. And I wonder whether there are others here who, although we do believe, we do kind of agree a little bit with Richard Dawkins. We feel that our faith is still very much a leap in the dark rather than a trust in the one who has clearly revealed himself as the son of God. Some of us who perhaps a little bit more strengthening of faith would be helpful, and if that is you. But I think one really helpful thing from today's passage would be to go off and really dig into the Old Testament that you might find there again and again God the father testifying again and again to his son that you might find life and certainty in his name speaking personally the thing that most has helped me in doing this was of course I took some years ago here called bible overview and during that course I started to see how the whole bible fits together and indeed the old testament points to christ just as the new and It's been a very, very wonderful strengthener of my own faith. But whatever we do, I do believe that we can go home this evening rejoicing that we have a faith founded in fact. And with it, the Son of God and life in his name, to whom be praise and honour and glory, now and forever. Let's pray. Mighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us by your word. We thank you that that word testifies to your Son, that we might find life in his name. So we pray that you would move everyone here present to find that Son, that no one would leave here without life in his name. We pray, Father, you would strengthen our faith, Open your scriptures to us. Help us to see your plan of salvation, that we would hope more and more in him. And we pray for the day he returns to bring us to that resurrection of life and the joys of the world to come. As we ask for his sake and in his name. Amen.